in We just had our uh, new members entering ceremony, which was wonderful. See all these new members uh, who've been contributing to our practice. Um, and that's what I want to talk about uh, today is uh, becoming a new member. Uh, actually, talking about it, uh, telling a little bit from Sojin's uh, memoirs, from my own memory of for myself, and maybe hearing from uh, some of you about how you came to practice. Uh, but I had a few announcements first. There's a lot going on. Uh, and uh, I know we have the announcements at the end, but I think I like to plug these things. Uh, so we have the second round of many communities, one Sangha, our uh, training program in diversity and equity, uh, and uh, how we deal with uh, difference and sameness. And that's going to be, that's going to begin in the late fall, but the registration is happening now on their spaces. And it's uh, it's looking like we're going to actually invite, uh, because there's some still been plenty of spaces, we're going to invite people from some other local sanghas to, to join who have similar interests. And so uh, I think it'll be a kind of cross sangha opportunity to experience, which is, which I think will be really rich. So uh, you can see that on the, on the website. And then there's three events coming up one day after the next in the week after, not next week, but the week after. So the 21st, 22nd, 23rd. On the 21st, uh, there's a class that's beginning, which is going to be class dialogue uh, between myself and Sheikh Yasir Chadli, who is a Moroccan Sufi Sheikh, uh, very well known in uh, the wider East Bay community. He's, he's an incredible person. He's a wonderful teacher, uh, wonderful musician, and he's spoken here several times in the past. Uh, and we've been friends uh, now for uh, almost 25 years, and uh, I thought we would have we will have a dialogue and uh, a community conversation about what is a good life in our respective traditions. What's a good life in our Zen tradition? What's a good life in his uh, 
uh, Sufi Islamic tradition, and there'll be music. Uh, it'll be really. It'll be. It will not be dry. It'll be. It'll be juicy, and uh, I think some some members of his community will probably join us as well. On Friday, the twenty. That's on Thursday evenings, the twenty. First and then three, it'll be three evenings, three Thursdays. What? In person? In person. It will be hybrid, but it's going to be here in the Zendo. And also in person in the Zendo on the uh, 22nd, we have a special teacher sent by Soto Shu. They do this almost every year, uh, Reverend Kasai Ikeda. Uh, and he will be giving, he'll be lecturing in English, and uh, that'll be on a Thursday, the Thursday afternoon slot at 5.40. Friday. Oh, Friday, Friday, thank you. Also in the Zendo. And then on Saturday, the 23rd, we have kind of a study session day. And since we've been training, trying to train new cooks, because we're sort of ramping up towards having uh, a fuller program of Orioki uh, dining in Zendo. Uh, the study text will be uh, Dogen uh, Zenji's Tenzo Kyokun, Instructions for the Cook. And uh, I sent that out to the listserv and I'll send it out again. Uh, we'll be able to scratch the surface of that rich text, but uh, uh, it's not just about, it's not about cooking. It is about cooking. It's not about cooking. It's about how to cook your life. Uh, and uh, so I think we'll have an interesting time with two study sessions on uh, Saturday the 23rd. Okay, end of announcements. Let's just take a couple of breaths here. So over the last months, I've been dipping into uh, Sojin's uh, forthcoming book, and this is it. I don't know if you can see it. It's called Seeing One Things Through, One Thing Through, and I'll actually tell you what that means. And this is a this is an advanced copy. Uh, and if you could show it to the camera. Oh, yes. Thank you. Can you see? Oh, yeah. It's lovely. There's a picture. The picture is of Suzuki Roshi uh, shaving Sojin's head in the, in the Dwight Way Zendo. Uh, and uh, it'll be out, the book will be out in early November, early December, rather. But I would thought, as long as we're talking about what it's like to come to Zen, uh, I thought I'd read you a few sections. So this is kind of the background uh, uh, Sojin speaking of himself as a seeker. During this period, I was looking for a spiritual teacher and community. This is, we're talking about uh, 
the early 1960s in San Francisco. I was inspired by Martin Buber's Tales of the Hasidim. I was completely swept away by the deep mysticism, the simplicity, the power of faith, the idea of the person as the pillar connecting heaven and earth, and the insightful logic of the tzaddik, the holy man. I liked the way the disciples gathered around the teachers in small communities, studying and practicing together. I also liked the concept of the hidden tzaddik, the one who appears as an ordinary person, a fool or an idiot, but who is in reality a great sage. In Zen, I also found some of these, some of the same parallel qualities. So this is before he had taken his Zen, and he looked, and he couldn't find uh, the the Judaism that he found at that time was uh, dry, and uh, it didn't have that spirit of community and warmth that for him that he was looking for. It's not, I wouldn't say that's overall true of Judaism, but um, I know exactly how he experienced that because it has to do with how I experienced Judaism. And it's unfortunate because there are other people who, who really got that, that rich, uh, warm communal feeling, uh, but he didn't find it. Um, and he looked around for Zen, uh, and he heard about Suzuki Roshi and heard about Zen Center, which was then at Sokoji on Bush Street uh, from some friends. And I'm just going to read you a couple paragraphs from uh, his introduction. So he came to Sokoji. Uh, there was this bare room with tatamis around the edges, along the walls, and an altar on one side. We went in and sat down and faced the wall. Somebody came up behind me and adjusted my posture and showed me how to hold my hands, not saying a word, just all feeling, all touch. It was Suzuki Roshi, of course. I was sitting there and it was just wonderful. I thought, here I am, just sitting here all by myself with nothing else but this wall, this seat, and this place. It felt like I had come home, right there. This was my first time at Sokoji. Suzuki Roshi would ask for questions. One time I asked, what is Nirvana? He looked at me and said, seeing one thing through to the end, which is what I, seeing one thing through is what I drew, drew on uh, for the title. Seeing one thing through to the end. All the teaching I had absorbed from him up to then came together and became a confirmation or a turning point. Or a turning point for my practice. Master Dogen said, 
Our practice is like one long rod of iron. Suzuki Roshi once said, the Soto Zen practice is like sucking up one endless Zen noodle. Um, you know, just when you have Japanese noodles, you and you're supposed to make the sound actually. Uh, uh, I think of it as the long distance runner who forgets about the finish line rather than the sprinter who runs as fast as possible in order to receive a medal at the end. So we come to practice for different reasons. And sometimes we come to practice for different reasons at different times in our life. Um, as I've told in the past, I came to uh, Zen practice twice. The first time I came to Zen practice was um, on Dwight Way uh, in the summer of 1968. And at that time, I, you know, I've been very influenced by uh, taking psychedelics. And I think, you know, to put it roughly, uh, I wanted to find a way to stay high, you know, a natural way because it was exhausting taking these, taking these drugs. Um, but I thought, you know, maybe Zen is a way that you could find this, this natural eye, or dare I say enlightenment, that would then kind of be with you. Um, and so I came out here with some friends and we, we found the Berkeley Zen Center on Dwight Way. And we went up the stairs to the that kind of pearwood zendo and sat and uh, I did not get high. <laughs> it, it really didn't work. <laughs> it was like, you know, I remember sitting, the, the eaves, you sat so that the eaves were kind of slanted in front of you. And I just remember seeing and seeing kind of patterns of light kind of moving on the wood. And I just thought, well, it's patterns of light moving on the wood. This is not very psychedelic, you know, and, and I'm not feeling high. It was hard and it was painful. Uh, and uh, it, I did not uh, achieve or even vaguely approach what I thought was in the offing. And still there was something there that called to me. There's something that I wanted to continue and I tried when I got back to uh, East Coast, but I, given what was going on in my uh, angst and politically ridden uh, 19 year old life, uh, I couldn't sustain it. Uh, but there was something, some seed that was planted. And then we fast forward another 15 years. And I was back out here living on the West Coast again. And at that point, I had reached a kind of existential crisis. I, 
I'd been in a band that I left, you know, I didn't, uh, no, I was, let's see, uh, probably 36, which is not young. Uh, and I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And I felt it, I was clear there was something I was supposed to be doing. Uh, and I had just, the way I describe it is I had just completely run out of script. And I read a couple of books uh, at that point in time. I read uh, The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson and also uh, The Empty Mirror by Jan van der Vettering, both of whom talk about doing Zazen. And uh, I read those books and I thought, I could do that. Uh, and then I read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which I hadn't read yet, and realized that I should do that. And so, uh, I, and I've told this one, I tell, you know, you get to a certain age, you tell the same stories over and over again. It'll happen to you, you know, uh, and your kids will mock you for it. Um, but, uh, I called Berkeley Zen Center because it wasn't on Dwight Way. I didn't know where it was. And somebody, and I said I had sat there in 1968 and had Zazen instruction and, you know, was interested in practicing and what should I do? And the person on the other side of the phone said, you should find a blank wall and sit down and stare at it. And I thought, that's a really weird thing to be saying to somebody who's cold calling on the phone, you know. And and then and I thought, this is the place for me, you know. Uh, and I came, and it was just, as Sojin was saying here, I came, and I sat down, and I felt I was home. And I knew that with a kind of, a certainty that I could not account for. Uh, but I felt at home, I thought. So this is, this is the initiation. But I do think that what happens to all of us as we, as we take up the practice, whether it's I think somebody's unmuted there because I'm, I'm hearing someone. Um, what happens is that sooner or later, and sometimes it's sooner, and sometimes it's a little later, you're going to come to the wall. You're coming to come to the place where, uh, whether you think you're at home here or not, this is really hard. Sojin, if you read on in his memoir, uh, I think his first couple of years were enormously painful. And his first Sashin, uh, he didn't know what he was getting in for, in for. And so it's like, after a couple of periods of Zazen and service and breakfast, 
when they were about to sit down for another period of zazen, it was like, well, they're going to sit again. And he left. And then what I love about this story is he went out to the marina and he walked around and realized there was no place else to be. So he came back and finished the session. And I think that's some of the experience that those of us who stayed uh, have. We hit this wall and to some extent we know that this is a fundamental experience in our life. We have to come up against ourselves. And the way we do that, the central way that we do that is in Zaza. Uh, to sit here uh, upright, cross-legged or otherwise, uh, and to really encounter What is it that's holding us back to meet it and to, in a sense, yield to it, not to fight it, but to be upright and encounter it in such a way that uh, you accept that into your life. And as you accept that into your life, some, some inner capacity grows in you. And I think that you could call that um, that recognition of that actual potential growth is way-seeking mind. Uh, we yearn to open. We want to, even if there's another part of us that is fighting and resisting it tooth and nail. So, you know, I, I know what my own struggles are. You know, I've certainly heard what other people struggle with. And, you know, you could say it seems silly. Why would you sit here and make life hard for yourself? Uh, but there's some faith that carries us through. And there's some inner sense that the most important thing we can do is really honestly to encounter ourselves. And if we have the capacity to do that, then we actually have the capacity to encounter others. Our compassion grows and we see that the 
the struggles, the difficulties, the quirks, and even the things that we don't like that other people do are just like our own encounters with ourselves. And this cultivates compassion for them and compassion for ourselves. And it brings forth, it can bring forth love. And I think that's, that's why we're here. That's why we persist in what from the outside, you may see like, seem like a very foolish endeavor. And I think a lot of people come for, they come for a variety of reasons. Almost everyone in this, in this Zendo, uh, comes because there's some spirit of seeking that we have. So it's different than uh, if you were born into uh, some religious tradition, uh, Buddhist or Christian or Jewish or otherwise, where it's something that's been handed down across the generations and it's your, it's your uh, inheritance and you just accept it or have to wrestle with it in those terms uh, for most of us we come because you know really put very plainly uh, the Buddha said I teach about suffering in the end of suffering you know uh, and, oh, the end of suffering, that sounds pretty good. Suffering I know about, but we don't know in the great detail that uh, maybe we have to know in order to meet it. So we come and we give ourselves to practice and we give ourselves to uh, also to, to the Dharma, we delve into the Dharma, we study the accumulated wisdom of 2,500 years, and we have to uh, not accept that. We don't accept that as scripture. We accept it as uh, help. And the parts that are helpful, we use. And the parts that are not, we set aside, you know, I set them aside and, you know, I think, well, I'm setting this aside, but I may understand somewhere down the line how this is useful. And we also immerse ourselves in Sangha, which is this wonderful community of practitioners. We have the Mahasangha of all beings, and then we have circles within circles, and we have the, the constantly 
changing and evolving circle of this particular Sangha. The Sangha that does this practice together and that uh, that takes care of this place. And I would also say it's really important. Uh, one of the things about this sensation of coming home is that you come home to a place that the sense of place is important. The intimacy that we have with this room, the fact that these, these four pillars are like our sisters and brothers who are sitting zazen with us every day. The bare wood, the gardens, the brickwork, all of this becomes uh, sort of the habitat of our larger mind of practice. And then, of course, there's the people. You know, I can remember there's so many people who've passed through here. There's so many people who are here. I've been here a long time now, and some of us have been here a long time, many. And, you know, there are people here who are here every day, every session, uh, for 10 or 15 years. And then they cycle out. But I still see them. And when one of them shows up, there's just this kind of flash of intimacy and connection. Because we did this, we all faced ourselves together. And we know each other from that, on that basis. And yet this is, it's constantly shifting. You know, it was Sojin's way, and I, I think I've tried to learn this. I really paid close attention. He just, he welcomed everybody who came. He let them go away. I mean, he didn't grab after them. He didn't bemoan they're going away. And then when they came back, as they often did, he welcomed them back because they were never really apart from this practice. So we do this every day. We come, we sit in the morning, we sit. Now we have, we have zazen like uh, four times a day here because really wild, you know, for a, a late, if it's awesome at six in the morning, we have another online period at 7.30, we have actually a number of people who are coming at noon, it's pretty solid now, for a half hour sort of informal sitting, just sitting, and then people come at 5.40, four times a day, for a place that is not a monastery, 
Uh, and this is the fundamental thing that we offer. Uh, and within that container, everything else that we need emerges to the extent that you can do it. You know, people have jobs, they have families, we get older, we get sick, we can't show up. Uh, so we come on Zoom, uh, but we're constantly, we're sustaining this practice in just a remarkably regular way. So um, I think I'm gonna stop and I'd love to hear uh, if, if people have a, what you think might be a useful or engaging story about your, uh, your coming to Berkeley Zen Center, or your coming to this practice. Uh, it'd be great to share some of these stories. So Lori has her hand up. Probably being my voice adequately, but. <laughs> and by the way, while she's doing it, you, you folks out there, if you uh, in Zoom land, if you have something to, to add, also just raise your digital hands and I'll try to call on you. Yeah. Um, I'd like to speak for the people who did not feel immediately at home Good. when they first came. And I mean, I guess in a way I could be that. I think a subset of those people are people who felt at home somewhere else first. I mean, who started in the, I think wherever you start in a way, if you stick it out, you feel, you start to feel at home. Maybe some of us didn't start <laughs> feeling at home anywhere. So I just like you to speak to that option as being equally Alan, I guess. Right. Well, thank you. That's really helpful um, because along with the feeling of being at home, uh, a lot of us, no matter how long we're here, have a feeling we don't really belong here. You know, I did, or uh, it's like that I that I'm not really a pivotal part of what's going on. I don't feel integral. I don't, it, um, it's like the real activity is going on someplace else. Uh, and everyone else is feeling right with it. And I'm odd man out or odd woman out. Right. And I've, you know, I can feel like that today, you know, and I'm, for God's sakes, I'm the abbot, you know, uh, but uh, that's also, that's part of the whole package, that's part of the wall that we encounter in ourselves, you know, uh, and to accept that, and maybe if you feel that way, to actually uh, Talk to somebody else and see how they feel about that. I think that's really important. I think that yeah. Thank you for for pointing that out because because the da the danger is um, 
I've experienced this in, in a lot of places. Danger is of a kind of self-congratulate feeling like I'm supposed to I'm supposed to feel really good. And it's kind of everybody else is involved in this process of self-congratulation and I'm not really feeling it. That's that's part of our the challenge of our encounter with ourselves. And that's also part of the, com the commonality that we hold. So thank you. Thanks, Lori. So um, much of what I wanted to say, but um, I'll expand a little bit. I, I first came here in 2012 and did not feel at home. Um, I, you know, I don't, I was here pretty much every morning for say about three months and I don't think anyone said a word to me and I'm not sure I said a word to anyone. Um, and, you know, okay, I was, I was shy and that's, that's how it was and that's, that's just what happened. Um, but I left and I came back um, about, again about five years ago um, because I didn't know what else to do and still didn't feel uh, the welcome was warmer and I was glad for that but still didn't feel much like oh this is this is home and that that has come um, that the feeling of, of warmth and community has has come but it took some time um, and I've often been reminded of the, the one, the one thing I will say is I've often been reminded of something that someone once told me, I don't remember who, and this may have been a quote from something else. And I, I just don't know. Um, but I know I heard it somewhere. <laughs> um, and that's that, um, home is where when you go there, they can't kick you out. Um, and I, whatever else has been going on in my life and there's been plenty of stuff going on in my life i've every time i've come here um i may not have always felt welcomed but i also never felt like you know, i never felt like anyone was going to kick me out mm -hmm. i've always appreciated that thank you you know when i as i said i came in the summer of 1968 and um, I came with uh, a couple of friends. Uh, and uh, I came particularly with my friend, my friend Hilton Obenzinger, uh, who was one of my closest friends from college. And when I came back in, in the 80s, and uh, the whole time that I was here in 1960, I don't think anybody said a word to me. You know, and I was left to my own, my own devices, and you know I didn't. But I also didn't speak to anybody else. And you know, when I came back, you know, and was really settled in practice, and was telling Sojin that I had about coming in 1968. Well, he remembered Hilton Obenzinger. He didn't remember me. <laughs> so actually. Hilton and I went and visited with Sojin, uh, you know, before he died. Uh, but uh, yeah, I never felt that I was going to be kicked out. But 
uh, and I didn't, but I didn't initially feel at home. I did, I did the next time around. Um, Ross? Good morning, Hosan. Can you hear me? Yep. Um, so uh, we were ordained together in your second iteration at BCC. And uh, at times I also have felt like disconnected or, you know, not belonging. And the thing that's helped to sustain me is to sit and touch the place of unconditionality, not being conditioned by friendships and connections. So that's a little piece to, to share. Maybe we could talk more about that on Monday at Open Discussion. Yeah. But I have, uh, an observation about in your reading of Sojin Roshi's experience of Nirvana, which is following one thing through to the end, that he left Sashin, went away, and then he came back to Sashin. So it felt to me like he uh, followed one thing through to the end and experienced Nirvana, though he didn't say that. Uh, my question is, how do we uh, practice and experience Nirvana when things are not uh, sort of time delineated? Like, we'll finish this talk at 11.15 or so, or there's going to school and classes and all that. So how, how do we practice um, this practice without um, uh, delineated time? Or within delineated time? Seeing one thing through means to practice continuously until your last breath. And so there's a continuity of practice uh, which flows from from one activity to the next activity. And, you know, can we see that? Sometimes it feels very disjunctive, but we're looking for we're looking for what's the connectivity. Got it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, that, that reminds me uh, when so, someone asked Suzuki Roshi, when does Zazen start? And he said it never ended. <laughs> right. Well, that's one of the things if you read, um, if you read the introduction to uh, the wonderful book by uh, Victor Sogen Hori called Zen Sand, his introduction, it, it's a, uh, he describes the Rinzai practice that he, that he did for, for many decades. And he very clear, his understanding, which was really helpful to me, was that, uh, that it's completely continuous. In fact, there, they, they leave the candle burning, you know, uh, because irrespective of the activity, the practice is continuous 24 hours, hours a day. Thank you Thank you. Ken? Thank you, Hosan. Um, I just remember my telephone experience with BZC. Um, I remember I read a lot of Zen texts in college, but was out in the working world and just felt this dissatisfaction. And so I looked up BZC on, online and I came and tried to find it and I could not find it. Like I walked up and down the street and I was like, where is this place? And so I went home, I called and I left a message said, please call me, didn't hear a word for a couple of weeks. 9-11 happened shortly thereafter. And I remember all of the 
the the chaos and anger and chatter in the news was just so disquieting and unsettling and um I remember <laughs> nothing is gonna keep me from sitting. And so I found it. And I came and I walked in the gate and sat. And it was for a Saturday lecture. And I honestly can't remember whether it was you or Sojin who said, but I remember it was the conversation with both of you after 9-11. And I remember one of you saying, now is not the time to rush to judgment. Now is the time to listen. That just touched my heart. It's always that time. Yeah. That time. Thank you. Um, yeah. I add, I th so I think the feeling of coming home is that there was something inside me that was longing for me to find my own home. And Berkeley Zen Center provided that space for me to find my own home. Yeah. Thank you. There's, I'm going to call on one more here because it's somebody who doesn't speak very often. Uh, Lynn McMichael. You're muted. I'm not hearing you. Uh, I think it's okay now. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I remember coming home from two years in Asia. Uh, and searching for something. And somebody mentioned uh, Tassajara. So I went down to Tassajara for about a month and then came back and found you guys. Um, and I'm one of these ones that has come in and out in my life with you. And I've never forgotten the closeness I felt to both Liz and Sojin and to everybody that I met there. And so in a strange way, I really feel it has been home since 1969. And I just wanted to thank you so much for being there for so many of us. Thank you. And I, re I remember you from from very early on when I was here and it, it I'm, you know, I'm not sure why. I remember you, you were not somebody who was sitting real regularly, but uh, uh, you were there. And that's part of the whole, uh, this circle of, of actual community. So thank you. Hands here, I see uh, Chloe and uh, Linda. I wanted to share part of my experience that's maybe the opposite of what Hosan shared in the okay. I had come to Dawson because I wanted something really boring and repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you found it, right? Boring <laughs> <laughs> and repetitive is what she was looking for. <laughs> Can you, can you mute, please? Go ahead. Um, so before uh, Zen practice, I had 
maybe a year or two years before that, gone on a seven-day Vipassana meditation retreat because I wanted to feel the psychedelic high, and it did work. But after that, the I think during the retreat, I felt great. There was maybe a similar high experience, but then after that, I really struggled for months or even a year because it it just felt like I wasn't in control of anything and thrown on a, uh, I don't know where I was taken to or just on a really strange ride. So then I wanted something really boring <laughs> and repetitive or uh, stabilizing, but it's not quite this, but um, yeah, that was kind of a, a different uh, side of Right. Well, thank you. I mean, one of the things that we can, uh, we, you can have some large meditative opening, and it can be destabilizing. Uh, and I think one of the things that that I appreciate about our practice is that it really is it's everyday practice, and sashin is a kind of intensification of that. But even sashin. Uh, includes all of the elements of everyday life. You know, it includes sitting, of course, and walking, eating, working, resting. All of that are, these are not kind of just release from zazen. They're actually part of the integral uh, vision of a Zen day. And uh, I think that's it's different from what you might find in other retreat uh, situations. And then we have everyday zazen. You know, you go to Sashin, then you come back the next day and you, and you sit. So this is part of the process, theoretically, of the stabilization. Thank you. Linda? Uh, yeah, should I wait? You should wait. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm one of these people who comes and goes on um, different practice places. I've been in the presenter a long time and I wasn't. But anyway, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't here for the new member uh, welcome this morning. But I was just thinking about it. I was wondering who are the new members? Why don't you, new and, members, raise your hands. And, uh, Chloe, you're one. And so as was, this discussion went on, I was just thinking, that um, every one of you will have a different feeling as you are new in some sense. <clears throat> some of you will feel like, oh, I'm home. Some of you will feel like I'm an alien. <laughs> some of you will welcome the spare, not talking too much. People, some of you will say these people are so cold and unfriendly. It could be none of these responses are wrong. Anyways, what just occurred to me was that um, the whole years of practice that I've been exposed to, one of the constant things is just remember every moment. So, hi. This is what we practice. So we practice right remembering. No, it's true. It's true. That's actually, and that is the the. I think a more accurate translation of what we translate as mindfulness. 
Thank you, Hosan. Uh, one of the things I keep returning to uh, with this is um, the role of representation in, in the room in the sauna. Um, in uh, uh, one of the first sanghas I joined and I was in for quite a while, uh, when I arrived, I was really surprised that about half of the sangha identified as gay. And at that time, the cultural expression of that was a, um, a way of expressing uh, warmth in a way that was unfamiliar to me. It was um, uh, more hugging, for instance, and then the way people would greet one another, um, uh, changing their robes or putting balloons in a certain place before sitting. Uh, and I uh, remember that what really um, was so touching and, and felt safe to me was that the embrace felt bounded. You know, that people had a sense of um, being careful. Mm -hmm. And so if you were completely new and you didn't have somebody walking up to you with open arms and you're welcome, you know, that wouldn't be safe. But but there would be that, that spirit. And so um, what what I noticed in that is over time I had entered identifying as straight. You know, and I haven't thought of that as even a consideration. But the representation in that sangha um, actually set up a situation where I started exploring um, my sexuality and I also started noticing um, kind of uh, have been hidden assumptions uh, in myself about what gay might look like, gay women, gay men, women, all this kind of stuff. And, and what I opened to, and it's not like, you know, I, this was in New York, and certainly uh, I, I was not unfamiliar to that, but the way that was expressed within the, the container of practice and practice place was really opening and challenging to me. And so it stayed with me, um, particularly through our many communities, one sangha, uh, training practice um, last year around, you know, expanding that to all kinds of representation and, of course, being white-bodied. Uh, now I'm, I'm just um, pondering this in a new way, and, and so I'm wondering how you see that. Well, I think that um, With each person who comes in the door, we have, all of us, have an opportunity to redefine what home is. In other words, each person brings the entirety of who they are in the gate. And we have two choices. We have many choices, but 
there's two fundamental choices. One is to communicate um, that, okay, you're here in our space. And so you're supposed to adhere to certain ways of thinking, certain ways of seeing things, certain values. Uh, that's uh -huh. That's often a dimension of this dynamic of a dynamic of inclusion exclusion. That's not what I want. What I want is that when somebody comes in, um, we come to know what their contribution is and expand our notion of home to include that. Uh, and so in other words, to learn from, from whoever comes in, whatever, whatever their, whatever background, whoever they are, uh, each person is bringing something unique and rich and our, uh, our Zen uh, tenet of not knowing and bearing witness expands to include that. And that's, you know, sometimes that's easy, sometimes that's hard. Uh, but I think that's, uh, I think there are many people here who, who see things in, in that sense, whether they can whether they're articulating it like that or not, but that's what I would, that's what I would say. And I think that's a really good place to end if that's okay.